Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this class from our Equip Ministry will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. Father God, we thank you for uh, your kindness to us. We thank you for your Word. We thank you that uh, we can trust uh, your Word and uh, we thank you that Christ died for our sins and rose again and that you're for us and we can uh, walk with you every day and we pray that you give us understanding of your word tonight and help us to live by faith in you uh, this week and for our whole lives and that we'd be uh, quick to run to you when uh, we're in trouble or when we're fearful and uh, that we would just learn to walk by faith in you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right. If you need a handout, uh, they're in the back on the back table. We have been working our way through Ezra and Esther. And these books, even though they land before Psalms and Proverbs and all those things, they occur late in the history of Israel and the Old Testament. So we're right in this period of restoration before uh, the 400 years of silence before Christ comes. So the kingdoms have been separated and sent into captivity, and now the southern kingdom is seeking to restore itself as the people of Israel um, as they seek to follow God. Uh, So we'll skip over that timeline for now, but the way we've broken up the class is... We studied Ezra 1 through 6, where the first uh, group returned from Babylon to go back to Jerusalem. Uh, The leaders were Zerubbabel and Jeshua. And then we went to Esther and studied how um, back in the capital city of Persia, um, everyone almost died, but God saved his people through um, Esther. And now we're in our final portion. Last week we studied Ezra 7, and tonight we'll be in Ezra 8 where a second group returns to Jerusalem and uh, led by Ezra. So just a reminder of why Ezra is recorded, why that's a big deal to the people of Israel, is uh, they're a nation. Israel is a nation. And when they were taken into captivity, they lost that identity of being uh, the people of God. They still were, but they were in exile. They weren't in the land that God had promised them. So there was a sense in which it didn't feel real. And so as they return to the land that God promised them, they need certain things to be a nation again. So uh, that's the first blank on your page there. We've run through this a couple times, but they desire to restore the theocratic kingdom. So they recognize that God is their king and they want a Davidic king under him. So that's the first thing they need is a Davidic king to be a nation again. And then they also are a kingdom under a deity. So they need priests to work out that relationship through their legal system of sacrifices and things like that. And then, so they need priests and they need the temple, which is what uh, Zerubbabel and Jeshua were working on in the first return. And then they also need to keep the Old Testament covenant. So they need the law and they need to obey that. So that's where Ezra comes in is he's an expert in the law. It says he's very skilled in the law and 
Uh, we'll see that in the next two weeks with once they're back in the land, uh, everything gets sad and it's bad. So this is the last happy night. So let's all have fun tonight. <laughs> and then Ezra 9 is really a downer. So next week, if you're going to pick a week to stay home, next week's the night. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. They, just, they all sin again. And it's like, you just got back from being in exile. OK. Uh, but then in Ezra 10, they all repent. But it still it like ends on this weird, sad note. So you'll have to read Nehemiah on your own. Uh, and then the theme of our class and the name is the good hand of our God is upon us. And you can see the references listed there where that comes up several times in Ezra 7 and now in Ezra 8 in our text. So before we jump into Ezra 8 specifically, I want to talk a little bit about that phrase and why does Ezra mention that? How many times is that? Six times? Why does he keep going back to that? It's almost like the refrain of the second return is Ezra seeking to lead the people back, and he's, he keeps saying, the good hand of the Lord is upon us. The hand of the Lord is upon us. So I have it written up here. So what about this phrase uh, strikes you, and why would it be significant to Ezra? How could it be significant to us? Uh, so, yeah. Share your thoughts, Del. I'm glad it's not a heavy hand. Exactly. So it's a it's a good hand, right? If it just said the hand of the Lord's upon us, we're kind of left wondering, you know, is it a hand that you think about like a father and a child, you know, that is pushing the child to, you know, is it is it a heavy hand forcing things? It's a good hand. It's a it's a kind hand. And this is the simple word in Hebrew for good. It's just Tov, it's just God's gracious good hand. Good, what else? Yeah, Raleigh. Encouragement and hope, you know that God is with you. Right, exactly. Um, and I think we'll see in tonight's lesson that uh, Ezra would have been tempted to think that God had deserted them, that they're facing dangers that if God did have a good hand upon them, they wouldn't face, but instead he still chooses to trust and hope in, in God's plan. Good. You what are the thoughts? possessive pronoun in the word our God. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's personal, right? In a land where there are many gods that right. people worship. These are good ideas. I'll change the color. Personal. Not heavy. Hopeful. Good. What else? Is his present tense. Yeah. Present yep. God is still with them. I almost couldn't find my is. Other thoughts? <clears throat> yeah, Linda. To what Del said about not being a heavy hand, but that goodness when you're going, when you've been through a really hard time, or mm -hmm. you're going through a really hard time, or you think you're going to go into a really hard time. Seeing the goodness of God is a little tougher. Right. And to, to be told the good hand of God, our God, is a, is a great comfort. Yep. He is good always. Right. Yeah, I think when we're in the midst of a hard trial or suffering or something like that, uh, you know, we can't personally see the light. It doesn't, 
all circumstances around us tell us this is not good. How could God be good? How could he be doing good for me? And oftentimes we need someone else to remind us and say, remember, God is faithful. God is good. Even though, you know, everything around you is saying no. <laughs> you know this and you have to believe and walk by faith that, that God is doing a good thing here. Good. Any other thoughts? Yeah, Even Tim. the analogy of a father with a son or a daughter. Mm -hmm. How, if you're stiff and cold, you're not going to reach out toward that child or toward the person. But when you're gentle and you're, you're leaning in, the hand is just a beautiful picture. Yeah. As opposed to the kick, the kick sure. of the foot or, or a push a shove. Or, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So it's a gentle. So it's a neat yeah. um, description. Mm-hmm. Good. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's good. I like it. Any other? Yeah. It's cause for hope. Um, so the circumstances, we tend to be driven by the present. Right. But that when we know that we have a good hand, our God, and it is upon us, all those things point toward the fact that you know, I was thinking today, there's no other faith that I'm aware of that causes us to have hope. Hmm. Um, but the message of the gospel is one of hope, right. regardless of if I'm caught. I mean, there are people caught down in tunnels hmm. in, in Jerusalem area now. And that's not a place of hope. Right. But for those who are believers, there's still reason for hope. Yep. That's really good, though. This trumps all the, uh, I'm sorry, the babbling. Um, it overrides yep. <laughs> all the conditions. Yep. That's really good. Yeah, Carissa? Um, the hand being upon us makes me think of, like, like blessing. Mm -hmm. Like, a lot in the Old Testament, they would put their hand on you and bless you. Right. It kind of gives kind of that feel anyway of God is blessing us. Yes. Yeah, I was thinking... Blessing or support. Ran out of room. <laughs> the margin's over here. Don't tell me when I did that. Yeah. yeah. Good. Yeah, these these uh, chosen people, God's people, uh, there were some names, at least one I know, that they wouldn't even pronounce. I mean, this shows that right. they realize when things are going see God move, mm -hmm. and not necessarily against them, to bring them back, they, they know it's a God, the creator God, the powerful God, one and only God, mm -hmm. and all the names that are associated with that, within the children of God. That's really good. One of those names, is it Yahweh? One of them, yep. they would not pronounce. Yep. The one you just pronounced, that's the one. Just kidding, just kidding, yeah. <laughs> I'm, you're great, you're great, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just joking. So along those lines, Jerry, um, why is it, to, to everybody, why is it different to say, like, you know, I could put my hand on Aaron, and why is it different that God's hand is upon Aaron than just anybody? Than like, does that make sense? Because of who he is. Yeah, exactly. So, so what aspect about God is helpful that 
that draws us to this statement, that, that makes it so encouraging to us. It, it takes us, human beings, out of the picture, other than what God wants to do with us. Right. So, so what can God do? He's all power. He's all power. Anything. Yeah, all, all those things. Right. So, so there's something about this, Aaron said it, transcendent is the, I was fishing. <laughs> I'm going to spell it wrong. Transcendent? I'll scribble so you can't tell. So, <laughs> so if it was just, you know, the good hand of, you know, oh man, I only have guys in our church coming to mind. Uh, Bob. We don't have a Bob, right? The good hand of Bob down the street is helping me versus the good hand of our God is upon us. Because God is transcendent, because he's sovereign, all-powerful, he has authority, uh, he can make whatever he desires happen for anybody, uh, that's part of why this is so helpful. But then the other side of that is his imminence. So this phrase also describes that his hand is on us um, and that he's our God. And so there's a nearness to him as well. And so I think the combination of that is what encourages Ezra so much that God is near to him. He's imminent. He's there helping him. His good hand is upon him. But he's also different in that he's all-powerful, he has authority, and he can do whatever he wants. He's the all-powerful, uh, one true God. So the question for us to think through on your own is think through your day and what would uh, someone's life look like that was fully trusting in a transcendent, imminent God and resting in that God's good hand is upon me as I walk through my day. So I'm sure there's ways we could all improve upon our days, but I think we find in Ezra 8, we find Ezra living that. Ezra walking through life, facing real challenges and uh, enemies and scary things, but trusting in the good hand of the Lord. And so we'll see him, he bows in submission and prayer before God and gathers all Israel to do the same. And we, I think we just see him, a good posture of what it looks like uh, when we live this out. Because we would all say, like, I want, I believe that, and I want to live like that's true, but doing it is harder. And so I think in Ezra we see uh, today partially what that looks like. And so there's an aspect here of because God is transcendent and imminent, he has the authority to do what we need in our lives, um, but also to be near enough to help us to do that. Um, so that, that's kind of a way you can think about authority is imminence and transcendence. So any authority is derived from God. So like I have an authority as a father and I have to exercise some transcendence um, that God has given me to direct my children, right? To command them to do things as God has given me the authority to do. But if I just was, you know, commanding my children what to do, I wouldn't be a good dad. There's a level of imminence that's needed where you're near your family and uh, being there with them and helping them 
and having a relationship with them and being you know, their dad. And so uh, oftentimes, uh, you know, we all have a mix of that that we naturally do in areas of authority that we have. But I think God shows us a good balance of uh, he has all authority to speak into our lives and to make us do what he wants. But then he gives us freedom to trust him and walk with him through life and to follow him. So let's look at this. And I think we see Ezra exercising this same authority with the people he works with uh, and is leading where he's commanding them, but he's very careful and helpful and with them in it all. So let's work down through Ezra 8 and think about these things. And one of the really cool things that happens here um, is... Ezra says it kind of two different ways throughout this. So in chapter 7, he talked about how the good hand of God was upon them. And then when we get to, in chapter 8, when we get to verse 22, he's going to say, the hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek him. So there's this aspect of God's good hand is upon them, and it's not just there to make them feel better, but it's there because God is for them. He's, he's doing good for them. So that's kind of our summary from Ezra 8 today, is the good hand of our God is upon Ezra and his people for their good. So there's kind of this double aspect that when God puts his good hand upon you, it's not uh, just for that purpose alone, just to make us feel better, but he's, he's for us and doing good um, for us. So let's uh, look at chapter 8, and this is a similar list to what we found with the first group returning. So what we're studying in chapter 8 is the journey um, of them leaving and heading back to Jerusalem. And here in verse 8, or chapter 8, we'll see a similar list of people uh, leaving Babylon. This is a personal report by Ezra. And actually some of the family names that are used are repeated in chapter 2. So why does Ezra include these people? Why doesn't he just say, and this many people came back with me? I think Ezra mentions specific households and people because uh, people are important. And this is the reason they're heading back is to be a nation all together. So each individual is part of the whole and necessary for God's mission for his people here. And it's helpful to remember that everyone didn't come back in the first one. So there's descendants of the first group that are, that are still here heading back again. And so this wasn't everyone leaving all at once. Uh, there were several journeys, and then even now, everyone doesn't go. So these are volunteers. These are people that said, I'll leave all I've ever known to go back to Jerusalem to start again and try to figure that out and be a nation again. So this was a big risk. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had to make a move before where maybe you didn't know if you had a job when you got there or you know, something like that where there's a big unknown in committing to something. And this was a huge unknown for them. It was uh, you know, leaving all the people who aren't coming and choosing to go back to Jerusalem and kind of rebuild their lives there. And these are people who have never been there. It's been uh, 130 years since they were there last, about, uh, since they were exiled. 
All right, so let's look at chapter 8, verse 1. These are the heads of their father's houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylon in the reign of King Artaxerxes. So you can notice there that this is a personal report of Ezra. So he's saying, these are the ones who went with me. So we're hearing from Ezra about his report of how the preparations and journeys went. So verse 2, of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom, of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel, of the sons of David, Hattush, of the sons of Shechaniah, of the sons of Perosh, Zechariah, and registered with him were 150 males. Of the sons of Pahath, Moab, oh man, Eliahonai, of the son of Zerahiah, and with him 200 males of the sons of Shechaniah, Ben, Jehazazet, Oh my, Ben Jehaziel, and with him 300 males of the sons of Aden, Abed, the son of Jonathan, and with him 50 males of the sons of Elam, Jeshiah, the son of Athaliah, and with him 70 males of the sons of Shephatiah, I should have had one of you guys read this, that's what it should have. <laughs> Shephatiah, Zebediah, the son of Michael, and with him 80 males of the sons of Joab, Obadiah, the son of Jehiel, with him 218 males of the sons of Shelomith, Ben Josahiah, oh man, Josephiah, and with him 160 males of the sons of Babiah, Zechariah the son of Babiah, and with him 28 males of the sons of Asgad, Johanan the son of Hakatan, and with him 110 males of the last sons of Adonikam, whose names are these, Eliphalet, Jael, and Shemaiah, and with them 60 males, also the sons of Bigvi and Uthai and Zabud, and with him 70 males. Woo, we made it, guys. <laughs> it's all downhill from here. Oh, man. But I think it's helpful to read those names because uh, more than likely that's who we are in the story of God's history throughout time. You know, we're not going to be Ezra. We're going to be, you know, Bigtha or whatever. Um, and this is the majority of the people that God uses to carry out his plan through history. So there's a, a famous quote about someone who said, I just want to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. And I think there's a, a sense of humility to that, that, you know, in and of ourselves, we're not uh, the most valuable thing. We are valuable. God is most valuable, and the gospel is valuable, and we're valuable because God loves us and uh, made us in his image. Uh, but it's not all about us. It's all about God. And for these people to be mentioned is a big deal, to, to use up uh, that space in Scripture. And so God uses people and he uses all of us and it's easy to think that you know I'm not like that person I'm not like Ezra you know I'm like you know I could be uh, Jael and be thinking man I wish I was like Ezra so that I could really help God out but instead we should be thinking what does God want me to do with how he's placed me and gifted me and maybe I am just a role player but in God's plan, there isn't role players. We read in 1 Corinthians 12 that every 
member of the body is necessary. You know, if we were all eyeballs, we'd look like the creatures in Revelation, or Ezekiel, or wherever that is. <laughs> and the body of Christ is made up of different members that are meant to complement one another in our service and glorifying of God. So we read all those to remember that we're all necessary and helpful and God uses us all. So God's hand provides and answers prayer as Ezra, oh, this is the full first point, as, uh, as Israel prepares to return. So that's this uh, whole first section. And then we just read, Ezra lists the volunteers who returned with him. So as they get ready to leave, they list those things. And uh, once we get to verse 15, they've already departed. We don't have the little short trip from when they left Babylon and from when they get to the river that leads to Ahava. So what we're going to see in this section is that Ezra realizes they have no Levites. So if you remember from what we discussed before, to be a nation again, they need Levitical priests. And so as they're leaving, Ezra's like, if we don't have priests, we can't be a nation. So it's a crisis. It's a national crisis for this group heading back that we're about to leave without all of the people we need to do this. So let's start reading in verse 15. Now I gathered them by the river that flows to Ahava, and we camped there three days. So that sounds pretty fun, doesn't it? So my guess is that when they're leaving, uh, when they're re leaving Babylon, there's a lot of hype. There's a lot of excitement as they're encouraging them and saying, yeah, go. And Ezra pretty much knows everyone that's with them and everything they have. But I think as a careful leader, he pauses here when they're not too far away to say, let's make sure we have everything before we get all the way back to Jerusalem. And then we're a thousand miles away and we're missing stuff. So they stop here. Uh, they don't know where this river was. It's probably a canal. Uh, there was a lot of canals that went in and out of Babylon. And it flows to Ahava. Later it'll call it the river Ahava. And Ahava just means love in Hebrew. So we don't fully know where that was, but it was probably a small town that was named Ahava that had a canal running through it. Uh, so as we read the second part of verse 15, he says, And I looked among the people and the priests and found none of the sons of Levi there. So again, you know, we read over that and we're like, big deal, you know. He left his jeans at home. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Levi jeans. It's a bad one. So. <laughs> Thanks, Aaron. But it's a big deal to them. It's a national crisis. If they can't offer sacrifices to God in the temple with the Levitical priesthood as God has led them to do, commanded them to do, then they can't be a nation and they can't atone for their sins as a nation. And so not only would it be bad that they couldn't do everything they needed to, but they would be left not able to perform the most necessary thing that they need as a nation. So he realizes this. So in verse 16, he makes a plan. He gathers some leaders together. He briefs them on what to do. Uh, he's a very good leader. So he picks guys with influence. It says that they're leaders. And then he picks some guys, it says, of understanding. So it's guys that were probably uh, good politically or like persuasive. 
Um, and then he briefs them on where to go, who to talk to, and what to say, and sends them back to get priests, to get Levites. So in verse 16, yeah, yeah. I shouldn't know the last time, but so this is the second group, though you said, right? Right. So was there no Levites in the first group that were already there? I guess I just yeah. So some went back with them um, in the first group, but I'm guessing Ezra just wants to be sure that they have everything they need. Um, Maybe they haven't been communicating well between them. No, no, it's a great, it's a great question. That it's a concern. I just thought this is the second group. What happened in the first group? That right. Yeah, we don't fully know. So when we read, um, uh, I'm going to misspeak. Is it Malachi? No, it's uh, what's the other one? Haggai. Haggai and uh, Zechariah. Those were written to the first group, and especially in Zechariah, there's a note of you're going to fail, uh, which is kind of sad. (laughs) Um, But the hope that we read about in Zechariah, the last half, is of Jesus coming humbly on a donkey. Uh, You know, think about some of those prophecies. And then him reigning forever as the perfect king. And so, uh, yeah, the, the first group kind of failed. There's probably some still there. I'm guessing Ezra just wanted to make sure that they had everything they needed going in. And that's a great question. Yeah. Thank you, Leo. Uh, verse 2, they do have a son of David with them. Uh, back up, I forgot to mention that. Hattush. So if they need a Davidic king, they have one with them, which is interesting. <laughs> Just keep a spare king, you know, in your pocket. Aaron. Something else to consider as far as the Levitical line goes, too, mm-hmm. is that the first group, at this point, they've kind of started to fall away from God again. And could be that uh, Ezra knows that, and so he's sending out a, he, him being somebody that is a very learned person and who's from that from that line as well. He probably knows others that are reputable uh, priests right. and trying to re- recruit them to kind of help come and bring revival, so to speak, back to right. Because it's been sixty years. Mm-hmm. There's a sixty-year gap where Esther occurs. Uh, since that group left. And so if you think about them being, you know, middle to later age, most of them are really old or, or passed on. And so it's the next generation or, or even the next that, that is there. So good. Uh, so yeah, he makes this plan to send some leaders back. And it's interesting, um, you know, he lists the people before that volunteered to come with. And then it's, you know, you would think that the priests would volunteer as well and come. And so uh, I read one commentator that said they, they liked their life without the rigorous routine of temple life. So the thought of like <laughs> going, you know, it doesn't say any of this, but the thought of going back to Jerusalem and not living a normal life anymore, but being, uh, you know, put back into that situation where they're leading temple worship constantly. Maybe some of them were hiding or, or chickening out or something. So it doesn't say that, but uh, it is, there is that, a little question there of why they weren't there in the first place. Uh, so in verse 16, then I sent for 
Eliezer? Is it Eliezer? All right. Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerib, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leaders. Um, so it just says leaders there. But so these are the people that would have, uh, you know, some influence, some authority, um, some guys that would carry, you know, some weight of authority being sent by Ezra, and then also for Joarib and Elnatha, men of understanding. So these would be more people, guys who are diplomatic and able to persuade and uh, get these guys to come back. And then he briefs them in verse 17. And I gave them a command for Ido, the chief man at the place of Kesaphia, and told them what they should say to Edu and his brethren, the Nethanim, at the place Kesaphia, that they should bring us servants for the house of our God. Then, so that's the briefing. Then they go in verse 18. Then by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding of the sons of Machli, the son of Levi, and the son of Israel, namely Sherebiah, with his sons and brothers, 18 men, and Hashabiah, and with him Jeshiah of the sons of Merari, his brothers and their sons, 20 men. Also of the Nethanim, whom David and the leaders had appointed for the service of the Levites, 220 Nethanim. All of them were designated by name. So here they are. They have this national crisis. Um, Ezra trusts the Lord and recognizes that as they go and bring the men they need back, that it's by God's good hand that this has happened. And so Ezra, as he goes through this, he's recognizing that God's hand is in this and God is doing this and he's bringing uh, the people they need to do this. <clears throat> so now they have everything they need to keep going, but Ezra is scared out of his mind. Um, so we'll see next here that Ezra chooses to trust the hand of God for their good instead of his own fearful worries. So look at verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava. So they're still at the river. And the issue that we're going to see here is that they have to travel across a vast territory. And they have a ton of money with them. They were given a ton of money by the king and by the Jewish people who stayed behind in Babylon. So they're carrying a fortune with them across, you know, this desert land. And uh, he's scared that they're going to be attacked, uh, that they're going to be ambushed. And he's ashamed. Uh, he's too ashamed to ask for help. So he's worried that if he, if he goes back to Babylon and says, could you give us a military escort, which they would give to them, uh, that that would bring dishonor upon God's name. Like, it, like he's not trusting the Lord to deliver them and provide for them. So let's read through here. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. For I was ashamed to request of the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road because we had spoken to the king saying, the good hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek him. But his power and his wrath are against all those who forsake him. 
So we fasted and entreated our God for this, and he answered our prayer. So this is just a beautiful insight into uh, the mind of Ezra, that even as he's super afraid of the enemies that they'll meet along the way, he's trusting the Lord. And, you know, we could say that, you know, it would have been wise for him to have concern about that and say, could we have an escort along the way? And that wouldn't have been wrong of him. And so I listed in Nehemiah where it's not wrong of Nehemiah and he has an escort of military to help him. So it's listed there, Nehemiah 2, 7 through 9. So I think the point that we're seeing here is that, you know, whether or not we have the protection we think we need, God's good hand accomplishes his mission in our lives. And so, you know, if we feel afraid, we uh, need to trust the Lord's good hand, whether we have, you know, a military, military escort or not. So as we think about that in our lives, um, it's easy, I know in my life, to think, you know, if I just had this safety thing or, or, or this help or this thing, then, then I would know that God was for me and that I could walk by faith in his good promises for me. But instead, our perspective needs to be that whether or not I'm facing danger, whether or not I'm afraid inside, whether or not um, I'm killed or hurt or tortured or, or neglected or left alone or whatever it might be, I can trust God's good hand to be doing what's best for me. So in those situations, there's obvious places where, you know, we can be concerned about our own health and things. Um, but even as Ezra is here, he's, he's, you can feel the tension he feels of, I feel like if I ask the king for help, then I'll be reflecting poorly upon what I said I believed about God. So we can, we can relate to that where, you know, God you know, teaches in his word that we should be careful with our money, we should save, we should get in a spot where we'll, you know, not be in a position financially where we'll be at risk, you know, we should steward our money well, all these things that are true in the Bible, good principles, but then we find ourselves in a bad spot, and we can feel like we'll reflect badly upon God if we ask for help. And that's, that's not true. Um, it's always good to trust the Lord and to uh, ask for help uh, through the means that he provides. Um, but there are times where, uh, you know, you can think about ways that, uh, like Ezra, that he believes wholeheartedly that God's plan is for their people to get back to the land. So he knows that God will do that. There's no question in his mind. Even as he's afraid of facing dangers, he knows that God is bringing them back to the land. And so he can run into the fray unafraid, so to speak. He has to you know, have a pep talk and <laughs> you know, go before the Lord and, and trust him. But it's true for us, too, that we have the promise of eternal life and the resurrection. And that even when we die, we live forever. So what do we have to be afraid of? Right? That's, what God, that's what Jesus says is, you know, don't fear man. Fear the one who can destroy, you know, the body and things like that. So the one to fear is God. He's the one that garners 
uh, our fear because he is the one that controls our destiny. And we trust in his faithfulness to get us there. And so whatever he asks us to do, we can run headlong into it because we know that he has our backs the whole way. So here he is, he's um, at the river, and he asks everyone to fast and to humble themselves before our God. And so a lot of times in Hebrew, when the Bible says before in relation to a person, it says in the face of. And so that's true here. Um, so like when God says in the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other God before me, it's the word for face. You will have no gods in my face. Um, so it's very blunt, and that's why we use before. But here it's similar. So we should humble ourselves before, in front of, the face of our God. So they're seeking God's face, and um, it's, it's an idiom. And they're seeking that God would lead them in the right or straight or smooth way for them and their little ones. And so that's just such a, such a sweet prayer um, for those of you who have maybe had children or have worked with little ones, is you want to lead little ones the right way. You don't want to lead them into danger. You don't want to tell them the wrong thing. Uh, you want to, to tell them the truth and help them understand how the world works the way God made it and to encourage them uh, to follow him in those things. And so that's at Ezra's heart here is I don't want to just lead them into an ambush. Uh, I don't want to lead them into a war. Uh, I want God to lead us on a smooth path. And then he reflects there that the hand, he told the king, the hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek him. So we see that double-sidedness of God's good hand is on the people of Israel in this situation for their good uh, to help them to do this. So in verse 23, they fasted and entreated their God, and God answered their prayer. So all through this, we just see Ezra, even as he faces crises, challenges, uh, potential of being attacked, uh, through all of this, he's, he's leaning upon that God is faithful and God has a good hand upon them to accomplish what he set out to do. So next we'll see, uh, they're preparing to leave the river Ahava, and they have all of these riches. And it doesn't mention it, but there's some level of concern of uh, what happens if some of these go missing along the way. Um, we want to make sure that it all gets there. So what happens here is Ezra chooses 12 leaders um, of the priests to steward all the money. So he's going to give them, you know, gold and silver and all these things, and he's going to write down how much he gives them, and they got to get it to Jerusalem, is what's happening in these verses. So Ezra chooses 12 leaders of the priests to carry the offerings. <clears throat> so again, I think this is showing Ezra's good leadership and trusting God's authority to give authority to these men to carry the money and trust them and uh, to send them out. So in verse 24, And I separated twelve of the leaders of the priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and ten of their brethren with them, and weighed out to them the silver and gold and the articles, um, the offering of the house of our God, which the king and his counselors and his princes and all Israel who were present had offered. I weighed into their hand six hundred and fifty talents of silver 
silver articles weighing 100 talents, 100 talents of gold, 12 gold basins worth 1,000 drachmas, and two vessels of fine polished bronze, precious as gold. And I said to them, you are holy to the Lord. The articles are holy also, and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord God of your fathers. So he's reminding them kind of what's at stake here. So he's saying, uh, you're holy, so in a way you're set apart to do this um, as priests. And then the articles of the temple are holy. So these are things that have been set apart just for use in God's temple. So we don't want them defiled. We don't want them broken. You need to get them there. And then as well, uh, and this is the silver and gold of the offerings that were given. So this is our funds to do what we need to do when we get there. So you need to get them there. So in verse 29, watch and keep them until you weigh them before the leaders of the priests and the Levites and heads of the father's houses of Israel and Jerusalem in the chambers of the house of the Lord. So this is just good bookkeeping that, you know, this is how much you have to steward and to get to Jerusalem. When we get there, we'll get it from you and make sure that it's all there. And if it's not, you're responsible and you have to answer for it. So verse 30, so the priests and the Levites received the silver and the gold and the articles by weight to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. Uh, so this is the first uh, section. Uh, God's hand provides and answers prayer as Israel prepares to return in these first 30 verses. And now in the last few verses, we'll see that God's hand guards Israel from enemy and ambush on the journey. So we actually don't uh, it just kind of skips over the thousand-mile journey back to Jerusalem, and we just get a little summary of how God was faithful. So look at uh, verse 31. It'll be God protected his people and their funds. So then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem, and the hand of our God was upon us. And he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambush along the road. So we came to Jerusalem and stayed there three days. So here he points out that they left uh, to go. God's hand was upon them, and he delivered them. So this is probably uh, not that they were attacked by lots of ambushes and armies along the way, but that there was just an absence. He protected them from these things. And so they arrive in Jerusalem and uh, make it. So. You know, you've experienced that relief before where maybe you're anxious about a trip or about something going on. And we saw Ezra's fear there where he had everyone fasting and praying. And then God brings you through and Ezra gives him the glory for that. <clears throat> so now on the fourth day, the silver and the gold and the articles were weighed in the house of our God by the hand of Merimoth, the son of Uriah the priest. And with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas. With them were the Levites, Josabad, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Benui, with the number and weight of everything. All the weight was written down at that time. So they made it, and everyone gave account of what they had. And again, it's just kind of breezed over in the text. But this was their whole mission was to get back, and uh, they made it. So that's the first thing we see. Uh, is that God's hand guards them along their way. And Ezra gives God the glory for that. He points out that it was his, his hand upon them. 
And then they're going to do two things in, the, in these last two verses. Uh, first, they're going to go to God and offer sacrifices to him in the temple. And then second, they're going to deliver uh, the orders from the king that was sent along with them. So in verse 35, the children of those who had been carried away captive, who had come from, cap- come from the captivity, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel. Twelve bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and 12 male goats as a sin offering. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. So they had that as their first thing. And then secondly, in verse 36, and they delivered the king's orders to the king's satraps and the governors in the region beyond the river. So they gave support to the people and the house of God. So the king's orders were to give um, basically Ezra the right to administer Jewish law in Jerusalem and in, in Israel. So that's kind of what we'll see in the next two chapters is people breaking the law and being awful and sad and then them repenting in chapter 10. Uh, But chapter 8 ends on a good note there. So here's that last blank. Second, the people delivered the king's orders. So I don't know if it's showing a level of priority there, but they do. The first thing they do uh, once they get settled is they offer sacrifices to God And then secondly, they deliver the king's orders. So what can we learn from this? My clicker things over here. So we must humble ourselves before the face of our God to know the straight way for us and our little ones. So I really liked how Ezra led all those people, uh, you know, in their, their time of fear, in this time of... You know, did God really say that we should go back to our land and set up our kingdom? Should we really do that? Is that really what God wants us to do? Is that the mission God has us on? So they're kind of at this point where they could go back to what's comfortable, to what they know, to what's easy. But instead, they bow before the Lord humbly and they recognize, you know, that God in his transcendence is able to bring them through. And he's also with them. His, his good hand is on them for their good. And so they, they go ahead and go forward. <clears throat> Secondly, God's good hand brings goodness to us. So Romans 8.28 um, talks about how all things work together for good, for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. So all those who have trusted in Christ, God is for. Sometimes it feels like God is working against us, or only bad things are coming. But God only does good towards his children. And so if he's, he's doing something in your life, you can trust him uh, to be doing what is good for you. And like we said earlier, you know, God is the one who holds our lives and has given us eternal life in Christ. And so even if we die, we live forever. There's really nothing to lose. Um, and so... God has freed us to follow his mission wholeheartedly because he's, he's for us and he has our ultimate good um, at heart. Yeah, uh, sometimes when we're fearful or we don't know what God is doing, you know, we're, we're quick to doubt him and that what he's doing is the thing that we need. So it's helpful to see that Ezra didn't have a military, military escort. 
and then later on Nehemiah does. And so the military escort isn't the issue, it's that both of them trusted the Lord whether they had one or not. So if I needed a military escort, God would give me one. You know, if I needed a new car, God would give me one. I don't need a new car. <laughs> you know, I might think I need a new car, but if I don't have one, I know that I don't need one because God would give it to me if I did. So hopefully that thought process is helpful. And then lastly, we can have faith that the path God has us on is his good path. So follow him in the moment-by-moment -moment decisions of life, and you will be right where you need to be. Um, yeah, it's easy to get caught up in you know, the big fork-in-the-road decisions of life. And most of following God's will happens in the little moment-by-moment -moment decisions where we decide, you know, Lord, I'm going to trust you with this decision. I think this is the right way, but your word says to do it this way, so I'm going to do it that way. That type of thing where uh, on a basic level uh, or a small level, we're trusting the Lord and walking with him and he's taking care of getting us where we need to be in the long run. Um, and then one last thing. I think there's a level to which in a, in a very flawed, sinful way, we can show others what God is like. So... I am not all-powerful, sovereign, uh, you know, able to do whatever I need to do to help someone, but I'm able to uh, exercise authority and gifts and talents and resources that God has, uh, has me stewarding, that he owns all of it, uh, to show that God's good hand is for someone. So... Uh, an instance is I like to work on cars and I couldn't pay to have a $2,000 repair done on someone's car, but I could fix it for them for, you know, $400 and then they don't have to pay, uh, you know, they don't have to pay for labor and things like that. So if, if you think creatively about the resources you do have, God can use you and what you do have, the resources you have, the authority you may have, the power you may have, uh, to do good and show God's goodness to someone, even if you know you don't have everything and you have very limited resources, you can still show God's goodness to others and uh, be a help to people um, in the ways that God has given you to steward. So, yep, I would love to have time for questions and more comments, but we went over. So, if you have more thoughts, please let me know, and uh, I'll close in prayer, and then we'll dismiss. Father God, we thank you so much for Christ and uh, his ultimate good gift that you have given us in salvation through him. And uh, we just pray that you'd help us to trust you and that you have our good at heart and that we would walk by faith through life when it's fearful, when we face uh, a crisis, when we face enemies, when we face um, hardship, that we would trust your goodness and uh, keep our eyes focused on you. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and to God be the glory.